This podcast is protected under the laws of the United States and other countries. Unauthorized duplication, distribution, or exhibition may result in civil liability, criminal prosecution, and the wrath of the tall man. <laughs> Boy! Thanks for checking out 90 for Chill, the podcast. This is your host, Cat Bus Russ, and this episode is going to be a another, I would say mega, but this was before I really figured out how Zoom worked and the fees and what have you, so this is only going to be probably an hour uh, 40 at best, not one of those three hour ones, so it's not too difficult, and we're going to cover a couple of actors who I think have had a pretty significant impact on this podcast, those would be Jeff Goldblum, the poetic critic's favorite, and Henry Rollins from, of course, Black Flag, the Rollins band. Um, but the film that uh, got him a podcast with us would be He Never Died, and it's probably Kodiak Thompson's favorite movie, and that's how I got him on the show. So we'll go over these two actors' sub-100-minute filmographies, and I should say, with the Jeff Goldblum, I set the standard at 97 minutes for the podcast, but we have expanded that, so there is an Earth Girls Are Easy episode as well. So, thanks for checking out the show, and if you want to be a guest on it, send an email to russthebus07 at gmail.com. That's R-U-S-S-T-H-E-B-U-S-07 at gmail.com. Offer me a movie, a theme, a director, an actor. As long as we focus on sub 100 minute material, I think we'll have a slice of fried gold. So, thanks again for coming to the 90 for Chill the podcast and enjoy the show. Little Hands says it's time to rock and roll. Bring the noise. Maybe you should join us for a ride. Jack. I... We need to talk. Do you have anything aside from being ambiguous and hostile? Hi. Hello? Who's Andrew? You never mentioned the daughter. We just met a few hours ago. So what do you want to do today? Bingo. Hi, Wendy. Hello, parents. Get out! beginning to think that you just crawled out of the ground. I was shocked to find out you had a kid. They have Andrea. Why is he looking at me like that? What are you doing? Have you seen a young lady with a lip ring in here today? What should look like? A young lady with a lip ring. Hey! Are you Derek? Yeah, motherfucker. How old are you? I have no idea. But I'm in the Bible if that means anything. I'm known as King. Probably just gonna go kill another room full of people. You are? Probably. Come on! I'm getting you out of here. I'm going to kill you. I want to, but I have to. 
right, so it says we're recording. So uh, this course is 90forchill.com, the podcast. And the topic this week is Henry Rollins' uh, sub-100-minute uh, library, at least theatrically. And I've brought in uh, Kodiak Thompson as my guest. Uh, how are we doing over there? Doing pretty well. Sitting here getting to talk about one of my favorite topics, so it works out pretty well. Well, I very cool. I mean, uh, we've pretty much uh, got to really connect, I think, at uh, our day job over the uh, Henry Rollins, probably his finest film, I would say, so far. Uh, he Never Died. Uh, definitely my my favorite movie that's <laughs> what attracted me to this idea in the first place ah well i mean it's it's definitely i mean, it's i don't think it was my t- first year i did the uh the blog i don't think it was my top pick i think that that uh, i well i know it wasn't but uh as i say of discovering movies so in 2019 that's when i found it um i would say that uh i mean it had to be up pretty close to the top of that list uh the mark hamill feature Brig- brigby bear actually was the number one about a uh, kid who's kidnapped at the hospital and raised by mark hamill and <laughs> another straight another nutty mathematician and to make sure he focuses pretty much on just that little world they create a post a lot they have him grow up in the concept of a post-apocalyptic world where the only communications through vhs tapes and mark hamill's character goes to the trouble of building the kid a uh, children's show <laughs> with basically an adults a you know a um Disney character, Disneyland character sized uh, Teddy Ruxpin, basically. Hmm. And that's that's just the premise. Eventually, of course, the authorities finally catch up with them. So it's about that kid uh, adjusting to the world and still being obsessed with that TV show. Yeah, that'd be a that'd be a bit of an adjustment, let's just say. (laughs) Yes. But I mean, uh, when we're talking about adjustments, I mean, he never died is pretty much about uh, either adjusting or just totally giving up on the concept yeah um, eventually when you've been around that long you just you can't care anymore like so i would say this is pretty much uh henry rollins really own lead only lead actor in role i know of and he's had some starring and he's been billed before but never so much in the limelight as as that movie that's for sure yeah. and on another note for it, it it's definitely a contrasting role compared to his others a, a lot of the times you see him as this this very loud outgoing or even uh like in feast that you that i've just seen um thanks to you actually um a motivational speaker in this role he, he just deadpans everything well it really kind of reminds me of his old show on ifc because uh yeah, he might have a monologue, but otherwise he's pretty, pretty mellowed out guy. I mean, you can always check out his uh, spoken word stuff. Um, I actually introduced uh, my ex-girlfriend Allie to uh, one of his Comedy Central appearances. 
on a show called This Isn't Happening. I think that may have had two seasons at best. Like we're talking Midnight Spot after At Midnight or The Wilmore Show. Those things when you fall asleep with the TV on and you're not sure if it was a fever dream or something that actually happened. Right. Yeah. Oh, and then, and that uh, that bit on uh, worth looking up. It's a, I think it's called uh, a punk rock hyenas or something, but it's a basically about his first trip on acid, and <laughs> really just getting to know the drug culture of. LA after moving from DC to be the front man of uh, Black Flag. That's and, something I'm going to have to look up. That's for yeah. sure. Yeah, you can find it on YouTube. Um, Funk rock hyenas. So, but uh, let's, I, I don't, I, as I say, I can't immediately think of how they, but yeah, or Henry Rollins acid, that probably is a good enough search as well. <laughs> so I, but Truthfully, growing up in a you know town that's a pretty um, uptight, uh, thirty-seven churches was our claim to fame. Besides the pumpkin capital of the world, um, Morton, Illinois, I go. really had no clue about punk mu- music. I, I mean, I was at one point the ideal conservative, I guess, like what do you mean no effects is a great band you know good bands sell out <laughs> so yeah uh needless to say i did a lot of growing up right out of high school um but so the first thing i ever really was exposed to from henry Rollins was the chase on a weird uh, night where we were a bunch of friends got together to celebrate mortal kombat two being released for the super nintendo like we had three super nintendos in the basement of this guy's place playing the game but we also had two different movies running and pretty much on repeat one of them was the chase which i get you know kept my attention uh where henry rollins plays a cop who's happens to be on cops basically and he's really trying to oversell how awesome it is being a cop um so talk about contrasting roles yeah (laughs) i mean the middle ground i guess would be spider from giant mnemonic uh where which is a movie a little too long for the podcast but uh it's basically spider is a doctor in a world where of course everybody's doing implants mechanically and stuff to each other to themselves post-apocalypse i mean the entire plot is based around keanu reeves being a courier with a hard drive in his brain and i at that time uh 250 megabytes was considered a lot and the things he's smuggling in his brain happens to be about a gig so he doesn't get it out in 24 hours his head explodes and that's where he eventually finds a spider who's a doctor <laughs> doctor trying to find a cure for the plague that's going on i mean rather timely now when you stop and think about it i mean with uh covid and all the chaos around it you kind of want a tattooed up uh, survivalist as your doctor i would think or at least that's what I'm looking for in a new doctor. 
mean, I think I'd let Henry Rollins operate on me either way just to say that I had it happen. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, but uh, I guess let's get back to really describing he never died. Uh, that's basically, I guess you'd say Henry Rollins is an immortal can- cannibal who's pretty much just fed up with um, living without being able to die despite his best efforts from the sounds of everything yes yeah and i guess you get the little uh you get some ideas that maybe he'll finally go back to reality to reality he finds he has a daughter and there's a waitress that just can't help but be attracted All to those rugged good looks yes <laughs> Lots of bingo in the game in the film. Aside from fighting off uh, loan sharks, I think it was. It's been a while since I watched it. I didn't binge it to come into this podcast. Uh, what I did watch um, recently, well, I watched two recently. Um, I wanted to find the last heist, but uh, of course, I decided to buy Feast in HD digitally. Um, so Man, that, that movie was was a riot just going through things i mean how can you not want to watch a movie where jason muse gets his face ripped off in the first 10 minutes you know that's that was in my opinion one of the funniest parts is that all over this um everything i look up i'm seeing jason muse as some of the top billing you see him pop up with this stylized job and everything and he's not even playing a character Yes. His character's name is Jason Hughes, and then just immediately dies. <laughs> yeah, it, no, it's very meta. The film. I mean, you kill a kid in the first, and and the and the fun is they post pretty much. Okay, these are strict. You know, your basic horror tropes, your stock characters, the hero, the badass, the scumbag, early mom. <laughs> yeah. The kid, surely they're not going to kill him. I think they list in in his little still frame. I think his life expectancy was uh, long and hopeful. Yes. Something along those lines. I mean, Judith Freelander is excellent. Um, Henry Rollins, that's, that's your standard uh, motivational speaker role. He seems to get a lot. And when you look at his spoken word, I mean... You can't help but kind of feel motivated. I've seen a couple of his specials, one where he just goes on a rant. Like, if we would just uh, leaflet Palestine and Israel with, uh, I can't remember the punk band. Maybe it was the Ramones CDs. You know, wait for the apocalypse to come. And once they realize they're both jamming out to, I want to be sedated before the battle. They'll come to their senses. Uh, an old quote that I've seen of his that fundamentally changed the way that I look at how I actually do things with life. I can't remember the exact wording for it, um, but the shorthand is, and I'm of course in my head, this is in his wonderful deadpan from He Never Died, which makes up 90% of my Henry Rollins consumption at this point. Um, basically came down to there is no work time there is no free time there's only time go to this this iteration of 
you can't set aside your goals for certain times. You know, everything that you do should be towards that, whether it's at your job, whether it's in, in your personal time, that you shouldn't be segregating whether or not you're moving forward with your life by what you're doing in these blocks. And that was always something that seemed pretty profound to me with him. Well, I mean, he's, you know, I, I can't think of too many immediate uh, inspirational stuff. Maybe it's just the song Liars always going to be in the back of my skull when I think about uh, Rollins, which is probably pretty much the first song I ever heard from him. And then before Black Flag, and I mean, even when I finally got to hear Black Flag, I think the first song I heard by him was TV Party. So, which is from the uh, Repo Man uh, movie which is a classic I haven't gotten around to. Uh, Emilio Estevez, uh, Harry Dean Stanton. Um, and they, it's, a lot of people say it inspired the briefcase bit from Pulp Fiction. Huh. Yeah, like opening the trunk, seeing a weird glow come out of it. And then in that clip, I see it vaporizes a cop, but <laughs> not, not quite Marcellus Wallace's soul. Oh, the wonderful things that they hide in the scripts that we never get to read. Yes. Um, so with, uh, I mean, Feast, uh, he's, I don't know. Is there any character you'd really want to see make it through to the end? I mean, you're, you, you want to see some survivors. Yes. Yeah, somebody, I'm not a big fan of the, the horror movies where, at the end of it, everyone dies because the, the feeling come, always comes to me of, you know, dead men tell no tales. Where does the story come from? But there's a couple of characters in there that like you want to pull through and you see the, for lack of a better word, you see the protagonist role switch between these couple as it moves up. Oh, yeah. And you just keep wanting someone to make it out and then they just keep dying. And Well, uh, spoiler for Feast 3. <laughs> Um, they pretty much all die by the end of that. Uh, that movie gets very meta. I mean, even Feast 2 gets pretty meta, but uh, Feast 3, they do it all. I mean, they do it all in the name of comedy, but uh, like basically the last scene before our only survivor, which would catch the uh, viewers of the first film by surprise, yeah um did a little bit of reading just to brief myself on it i'm sorry said i did a little bit of reading just oh. to brief myself on the yeah. other two so i get where you're coming from right basically the you know it all ends just so they can have a a bunch of mariachis just sing the story of the films in spanish uh but uh you know i i can say feast is what basically sold me on getting into the saw movies because the uh, writers ended up writing the, the uh episode the la the episodes four through seven um after uh james wan and uh i can't remember the other guy's name and he's actually becoming quite the uh, director um who's done a upgrade and uh, the invisible man. So 
Um, but Upgrade, I think, would have been a movie, which is a really great movie. Could have been Upgrade with Henry Rollins, though. I mean, on that same token of English, anything with Henry Rollins could be an upgrade. <laughs> well, I mean, that's why I, I guess that's why Heat is a the heist movie because uh, you do have Henry Rollins is I believe it's um I can't remember the name of the actor he he do, he plays the pretty much stuck playing the villain in a lot of movies I uh, recall if you've seen the movie Drive Angry he's the uh, uh, guy trying to bring Nick Cage back to hell yep so um, Even- speaking of his, his villain roles even as something recently as you and i watched uh dreamland yes that is kind of that that movie is a trip i like at one point i went i paused the movie and i went in and checked my temperature to make sure that what i was seeing was not hallucinations because that movie was something <laughs> well, um yeah i mean it starts out with henry rollins basically sending a hitman to kill pretty much the child traffickers from Germany and Egypt just so he could become the Luxembourg's top child trafficker. And then, you know, you get the little uh, uh, 40s-style outfits on the children, assassins, I mean, you got vampires. You've pretty much got every kind of uh, deplorable human being in one place, regardless of their differences, which results in a pretty awesome finale. I mean, definitely, uh, definitely one thing that you didn't see coming with that. What wasn't expecting the the like supernatural tones in that one either. That kind of it kind of showed up out of nowhere yeah it's it's kind of they, they try to do a parallel lives thing between the uh hitman uh stephen mccaddy who's probably best known for a horror movie i haven't seen myself yet uh pontypool which is a i believe along lines of a zombie outbreak film but um basically what's contaminating everybody and turning them into monsters is the the language like certain words are contagious or something and i think it kind of centers around well you have uh steven mchattie as a you know right-wing shock jock so obviously he's not gonna give up his freedom of speech and who knows if he's actually fueling the apocalypse. Huh. Interestingly enough, just brushing up on Pontypool a little bit here, um, supposedly Dreamland is actually a spinoff of it. Like okay. there's the universe. That well, I, that is uh, that is very trippy. This is the Canadian Cloverfield, <laughs> I guess. I mean, especially in such an interesting way that Stephen McCaddy already played two roles in Dreamland. Which now means that in this universe of Pontypool, uh, Stephen McCaddy exists as three separate people. <laughs> yeah, that's that. That is a uh, definitely a little. Yeah, that is that's. Did well, I didn't. That explains a lot, honestly. Um, 
Now the vampire angle, that is the real real kicker. And then you even got it seeming like it's a Cersei Lannister Jamie type thing going on with uh, Juliet Lewis. But the real charm of Henry Rollins' performance, I think, is yeah, he's totally unhinged until the supernatural elements come in for him with the uh, vampire. Uh, and then it's kind of like he stops and like, okay, this is a this is a crazy I don't understand. And he's kind of his character is kind of just like trying to adjust the rest of the film, and you kind of. I don't want to say empathize or sympathize with them. I mean, but we're kind of going on the same trip. So the uh, the actor who plays the uh, uh, the countess's brother just called the count. I think he's listed in the credits literally just as vampire. <laughs> uh, looks like it's Tomas Lamarque. Uh, I, I know he was um, Calip. Uh, he was in X Men uh, Apocalypse. Okay. As um, I can't remember the name. Caliper. Caliban. Uh, it looks like. Yeah, yeah. He's basically uh, dealing with, um, yeah, just making uh, underground deals for the mutants in that movie. Uh, X Men Apocalypse. It might be worth a watch if you're a fan of the franchise. I just say. You're not missing anything though if you skip that one interestingly enough also in the uh blade runner 2045 oh yeah as well as snowpiercer actually i have not watched snowpiercer and now it's like more pressure to watch it now than ever because you know i watch AEW wrestling every wednesday night and of course all tnt has right now otherwise is snowpiercer I mean, and the NBA, but you know, it's not it's not the all I can say is people dunk too much now. Like I should specify this is it looks like he has just a bit role in the, the film Snowpiercer rather than the TV show. Yeah, no, I'm just saying well everybody I mean it's Bong Bonju um Jun Ho who directed Snowpiercer and uh, he just won the just cleaned up at the Oscars with Parasite. So, of course, everybody uh, who's seen it, oh, you have to see Snowpiercer. And now with the TV show, which I hear is definitely not on par with the film, um, it's kind of like, well, I need to see Snowpiercer, the the movie, before I see the even give the show a chance. I think that it might might fall into the, the classic pitfall when they try and expand things of, the source material is perfect for a film for you know your your 90 minute runtime like we said for the podcast here um but when you stretch that out into eight hours well on the flip side though snowpiercer was based off a uh i believe it was based off a manga oh or maybe a korean comic book or might have even been french um i heard about this from a podcast called screen drafts and they had a where they pick like the top seven movies of a certain uh, genre. And the podcast that was on was comic book movies, non superhero. And Snowpiercer, I think, made it up to number three, maybe two. 
I don't think it was number one, but um, so when you're based off a comic book, honestly, you've probably got more. Uh, maybe Snowpiercer's the film is actually a con just condensing everything. Cause I can it, see that. Because it looks like uh, they, the big bad character uh, was, um, so, I mean, just introduced at the end of Snowpiercer from what I've heard. And now it looks like he's just introduced at the beginning of the second season or the end of the first season. It's Sean Bean. So that actually is probably more of a selling point than, oh, I got to catch up on things. Uh, but I was a big Game of Thrones fan. And before that, you know, 007, Golden Eye, uh, Ronin, he plays the guy who faked his way into the crew. So Robert De Niro. Lord of the Rings, of course. Oh, yes. Which uh, brings it, reminds me of uh, the other movie I watched recently with Henry Rollins was Wrong Turn 2. Uh, that was like a freebie when I signed up, created a Voodoo account. They like gave me eight movies. And um, Wrong Turn 2 was one of them. And seems to have been better received um, by uh, than the first film. I mean, it's a, about Henry Rollins is an ex-Marine colonel who's hosting a, rea a survivor basically except they're making it look like it's the uh, end of the world and you know when you know it they decide to shoot it in West Virginia where there's mutated cannibals <laughs> you know as you typically find in your suburban neighborhoods yeah so well yeah you don't really want to I don't know in an ap apocalypse do you want to be in suburbia or do you want to be in the woods I could go up on a whole tangent here, but I promise we don't have enough time. <laughs> well, it's funny because I just uh, like, oh shoot, um, I never did anything on Zoom until the pot, until like started doing this as a podcast. This was a basically an attainable New Year's resolution on my behalf. My typical New Year's resolution is eating something uh, buffalo themed every day. <laughs> Uh, usually it ends around mid-January just by accident, but uh, uh, made it like made it to the 29th of February last year. So, um, but I kept hearing Zoom advertising, "Oh, we're waiving the 40-minute uh, rule on uh, meetings uh, for the holidays." And like, "Oh, great! I only have 40 minutes to play out, play with." This podcast is too new. We're not going to be making that blue chew money yet. Um, so, and then I'm online today, like, oh, what, what is really the deal about Zoom? And I find out, oh, you can have unlimited time talking one-on-one uh, -on -one meetings. It's group meetings where they start charging you. So not to say that I think Joe and I didn't cover everything Saw related in our podcast, but um. So time really isn't a concern, uh, uh, at least on my end now. Okay. But uh, we I, were... still need, I still need to get that Blue Chew money at some point, though. Um, spent uh, yesterday stopping in, deliver, delivering you the uh, DVD. I ended up spending uh, $200 on a podcast uh, 
recorder and another microphone. So, so that's well, that one off. The microphone's clear as day. Oh well, I'm glad glad to hear that because it's the cheaper cheaper snowball. Um, I'm not using the uh, Zoom recorder yet because it's actually separate from the computer, so wouldn't really help us in the Zoom. Uh, different Zoom brands, <laughs> a Zoom meeting. But I feel like ever since everybody went work from home and, and such that there have been quite a few uh, Zoom impersonators. Well, I, I've known about the Zoom podcast recording equipment uh, way before I knew about the, uh, the uh, like I thought Skype was supposed to be your uh, meeting thing. And I don't know how they screwed up that during the during the pandemic. That's true. I think I think a lot of it was even their uh, their infrastructure. People were saying that like Skype just could not handle the load. Oh, if I I think I read an article about that at one point. Huh. Well, like that's the industry name. Yeah. Skype. Yep. I mean, it's. I mean, Skype is pretty much the same, like, is tape for millennials, basically. Yeah. Which, uh, so with uh, Wrong Turn 2, um, speaking of millennials, <laughs> no, it's it's more, I'd say more Gen X, but what have you. It's a, it is, for the most part, a bunch of stock characters you don't mind seeing get uh, brutally murdered by cannibals. Uh, Henry Rollins gets some good bits and why I bring it up is that he he has a death that tops Boromir when it comes to sacrifice in that feature uh, very similar to Boromir's but uh, so spoiler some archery involved but <laughs> um, go wrong with archery related deaths or either oh there's there's another good one in that I mean you get a, you get a, maybe you do like the characters you do end up liking are worth liking. It's, but man, the ones that don't, you don't, you're not supposed to care about. They really go to go to new uh, lengths to make you not care about them, and or take joy in their face being used to use during a sex act <laughs> not that was that was one thing i wasn't expecting out of feast um just the the sporadic assaults that you you catch from the uh the monsters throughout the movie not really something that i i had panned out definitely had just <sighs> spread out just enough that it wasn't cons making me concerned for the film if it was going to continue popping up but enough that it still gave that shock for just a minute of like did i really just watch that happen yes oh well i mean the uh biker girl yeah that's uh oh geez now i'm just thinking about what happened to biker girl before the explosion yeah the the spit take we'll refer to it as yes yeah oh. Pardon me, but I would like to interrupt this current podcast just in the event that we did not get our Stuart Gordon insertation completed at the appropriate time. 
So bear with us, and we'll be back with our regularly scheduled podcast. It's been a few hours, but I watched uh, Dagon so that 90forchill.com can have its weekly Stuart Gordon fix. This film has to be the most Lovecraftian project I've ever seen. Now, Reanimator and From Beyond are Lovecraft adaptations by Stuart Gordon, but again, those are simple stories, really, that don't really go beyond the initial premise. Dr. West creates a serum, the dimensional machine is acts up and decapitates the inventor right off the bat and from beyond it's kind of very cool to see a film that is lovecraft through and through like this is something that was totally flushed out with keeping lovecraft in mind not just being expanding upon a short story it feels like it's a long novel perhaps i should read some lovecraft perhaps i want to avoid those problems the CGI effects in this uh, film about a society that swore their fate to the sea god Dagon to ensure gold and plentiful fish has now become a society that's going to have to go into the water and they need sacrifices to keep Dagon happy. So our new millionaire, Paul, and his significant other barbara are on a boat off the spanish coast where they run ashore and eventually all end up captured and barbara's fate that she'll be the mother to dagon's latest offspring while paul has to deal with the fact he's obsessed with this tentacled mermaid that keeps showing up in his dreams as i said cg's a little off but you sparingly enough that it still catches you off the guard the best body hoarder Cronenberg type thing I would say would be the actual flaying of some man's face I thought that looked pretty cool the acting is solid it's fun that they pretty much don't subtitle the Spanish in this film it's definitely worth uh, your time and gives you a new look on what Ariel should be hold on to your butts um that's a fun thing. Like they, they have a lot of good things for the sequel, at least a lot of good premises. Uh, tit girl, tat girl, biker girl's twin sister. Which was a, a great thing to happen. Great way to just include those characters from the original. Just, yes, I am her twin. Yeah. Um, yeah, very uh, John Woo, uh, Chow Young Fat. Uh, uh, what was it? Uh, a Better Tomorrow, I guess. Like Chow Young Fat was so popular in the first film, they just had to bring him back. So it's his twin brother. We always, uh, we always joke in the Dungeons and Dragons groups that we play in that as soon as one character dies, they just write Junior on their character sheet and keep playing with them. Well, gosh, I mean, how then? How many generations of Mario are there? Oh wow. Uh, I mean, once you once you hit that turtle uh, into that little corner and get the ninety nine uh, one ups, I don't have a good answer for that one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're just gonna go with the the mathematically correct answer of more than a few. Yes. Yeah. Less than infinity, greater than one. Exactly. 
Oh, uh, so otherwise, uh, Henry Rollins, I mean, he's he's done a lot of, um, I mean, I'd say most of his work do, does fit that, um, fit the time frame that, um, of you know, 90 for chill, the 75 minute uh, basement, the 100 minute ceiling. Uh, I mean, he, as I say, Johnny Nemanis, a few minutes over heat. It's a three-hour movie, but um, that's pretty much you know ninety minutes right there, right? Yeah. So, but uh, you've seen uh, she never's Di- she never died. I haven't um, seen that one myself. It just really seemed like, and I've had the uh, whenever I've tweeted out my review for. Uh, linked for my review for He Never Died on 90forchill.com. Uh, I occasionally, I, you know, every so often the director goes and gives me a like at least on it. But uh, I don't know. I saw the tra- I saw what iTunes offered as a trailer for She Never Died. It really looked like they were just going to more, uh, dare I say, just um, base premise on that. They so for me when it comes to he never died and again this is a, a bit of a, a spoiler alert um with who Hen- or Henry Rollins' character actually is being yes. being Kane um well, was, he, he, that's the first documented <laughs> yeah. yeah um that was a really pleasant surprise like it wasn't the core of the movie it was something that it didn't feel thrown in but he was like oh okay cool that explains this and it's it's great for that uh, but they didn't revolve the entire movie around that fact okay um whereas in she never died i was i love he never died the the first one the second one i was honestly kind of disappointed in because everything in the movie revolved around who she was as a character rather than the actual story that's occurring and a lot of it seemed just really heavy-handed just shoved in there it's, well it it sounds like it might have been uh he never died she never died might have been what the director wanted he uh he never died though is uh, just a pleasant surprise of what he had available being Henry Rollins. Yeah, I, I think that's that's accurate. Yeah. So, um, but uh, I was uh, quite sad that there for quite a while there was talks about doing a miniseries with Henry Rollins reprising his role as Jack um, from He Never Died, and I, I just don't think it ever panned out, but I would have loved to see that. Oh man! No, I, that's something on a podcast called the Rewatchables, where they uh, ask um, at one point, "Do you think this movie could have been a ten-episode Netflix series?" And I mean, this is pretty much an adult. Well, not to say that Highlander was the series was intended for children, but. <laughs> You know, beheadings all around. Definitely great for my four-year-old. Yeah, well, <laughs> you don't see the beheadings on the TV show. That's fair. 
will be the, the Batman treatment and just give him a flash of light every time. Yeah, no, pretty much. Um, like, I mean, you look at the TV show was awesome because you look at the guest stars they had. They had Roddy Piper. They had uh, Ron Perlman. I don't know how they got that one. <laughs> well, it was 1997. So I think the biggest thing he probably, he was just about to be in uh, Alien Resurrection. And otherwise, I think the biggest thing he was in, really, he was doing a lot of foreign work. Um, Guillermo del Toro's Mexican films. And, yeah. and uh, he was in uh, Jeanne and Caro's City of Lost Children, um, which is, I mean, just a magnificent film, real nightmare fuel. Definitely not for children, but it's just so fairy tale like. <laughs> uh, you know, you could see why my best friend named her kid after the lead little girl in that feature. Um, I don't know. I think just uh, Europe never caught on to the American idea that children are children, not little adults. Which I guess you could say goes back to uh, Dreamland with um, your gang ch little ch children gangsters. Yeah. So, but um, let's see, trying to think more of Henry Rollins when it comes to uh, 90 minute features. I mean, there, there are, there honestly are quite a few. I did see some others on iTunes. I'm just trying to find a way to watch the last heist. That's a, didn't seem to really score well on the meta score on IMDb, but I mean, the movie's Henry Rollins. I don't know if he's the character I want him to be in it, but the description is a bunch of guy guys try to rob a bank, turns into a hostage situation, and one of the hostages happens to be a serial killer picking them off. So, like... It's, it's a heck of a premise. Yeah, so it's like, if Henry Rollins is a serial killer, that that's gold. But... I imagine he's probably the calm guy. I'm trying to think of anything else that, like, I know that I went into his voice acting work a little bit, and that was kind of an interesting. Oh yeah, start. I mean, Cora was the big one, I think. I do. The, on the note of Cora, I I do have to laugh a little bit that the character that they had him play, of course, uh, Sahir. Um, a lot of the other characters, like they don't match the physical appearance of the voice actors. And then there's a here in Henry Rollins where they basically, it looks like just traced a photo of him. <laughs> yeah. You get a lot of that, especially with the series. That, uh, I don't, I mean, it was really just a spinoff of Avatar, if I'm correct. I'm not. The sequel. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. I, uh, I, I come to, I mean, I never really watched the series just because, um, you know, I'm probably uh, eight to 10 years older than you. And um, it's uh, basically I was, took so much time of my life in, my, in high school buying VHS tapes of anime. Yeah. <laughs> to see an American inspired 
concept of it, it just kind of felt disingenuous. But I mean, nobody's ever said a bad thing about the series, so just just M Night Shyamalan's bastardization of it. With that being said, I think that's the lesson: is if you're cool and niche, do not uh, get near M Night Shyamalan. I, I don't want to see Henry Rollins. Uh, oh no! Get oh. caught one of his twists. What a horrific idea that is! <laughs> Let's just avoid that. Yes. So, with that said, um, well, I don't think we have too much to do except the most important parts of podcasts, which are plugs and upcoming events. Um, so, do you have anything going on social media wise? I know Joe had his Twitch. I know he does his art. Um, honestly, this is kind of my first foray into the, the podcasting world. Um, most of what I do is storytelling through D&D, um, things of that measure, but not a lot of that's public yet. Kind of just getting my feet wet in the world. All right. Well, keep in mind, uh, keep in mind there's like a big market for D&D inspired podcast. <laughs> I, I see mean, a people, lot of them playing. We are going to start recording. Yeah, Definitely. I know there's that I think there's no rules bar no rules barred a wrestling one. Uh <laughs> but yeah. Uh otherwise me, I'm on 90forchill.com is where you can find the podcast. Just see the blog post. We're not quite to the point where I'm gonna spend the money to go to Podbean and get promoted. We'll get there. <laughs> um I just don't think I have enough content yet. So you see a podca- pod, uh, podcast post, just hit the play button. Um, that's 90forchill.com again. You can find me on Twitter at Main Event Zombie, where I'm going to keep doing my desperate pleas to get my uh, pro wrestling, low-budget zombie comedy um, out of developmental hell. Uh, if you can help, uh, just send an email to rustabus07 at gmail.com. I get all the spam. I know what's good, what's not. Um, <laughs> So, uh, well, thank you very much, uh, Kodiak, for coming on. Giving no, me- thank you for the invite, man. It's been a, a hell of a good time. I really enjoyed it. Oh, well, that, that's the most important thing on my end. Uh, so 90 for chill. It's basically, you know, until unless you're going to build a franchise, keep your, keep your story simple. Don't go too long. If, you're, if your story is good enough for 90 minutes, you'll get your sequel, and then, I can, then you get all the time in the world. <laughs> So thank you again, uh, Kodiak, and I will see you sometime down down the road. I look forward to it, man. Good talking to you. Good talking to you. Thanks. Now available on video cassette. I think you're making a mistake. I think you really want to talk to me. Sorry, I have three other interviews to do before this party's over. Yeah, if they're not working on something that'll change the world as we know it. They say they are. Yeah, but they're lying. There is a limit, even to the imagination. Human teleportation, molecular decimation, breakdown, and reformation is inherently purging. Where our greatest creations meet our deepest fears. Something went wrong, Seth. When you went through, something went wrong. You are about to go beyond that limit. Those weird hairs that were growing out of your back, I haven't analyzed. 
they were definitely not human. If you saw how scared and angry and desperate he is... I'm sure Typhoid Mary was a very nice person, too, when you saw her socially. No! You're afraid to be destroyed and recreated, aren't you? You're changing, Seth. Everything about you is changing. Oh, no. What's happening to me if I die? I want to know what's going on. What does the disease want? What's to turn me into something else? Oh, no. A fly got into the transmitter pod with me that first time when I was alone. Don't go back to it. Could be contagious. Oh, I'm afraid! Don't be afraid! No. Be afraid. Be very afraid. to 94 Chill, the podcast. This is uh, Russ Stevens. I'm, my guest this week is the Jurassic Jeff Jezebel, Rory Stevens. She's uh, been on numerous podcasts inadvertently at such conventions as TARDIS, something about the Elephranians, what have you. Uh, but we're not about that good doctor. We're about... Uh, well, we're in a roundabout way about uh, Dr. Malcolm. So, but I'll let Rory explain who she is a little bit, and then we'll get rolling on the Jeff Goldblum's 90-Minute Affairs. And judging <laughs> that he's a sci-fi icon, I think after four nights of movies from him in the sub-97-minute field... I think he's earned that extra half hour. <laughs> so, what's up, Rory? Well, uh, I wouldn't say it's numerous podcasts. It's, I pop up occasionally when I'm at Chicago TARDIS that people do record podcasts there as panels or in passing. And sometimes they'll have me put in a few words. Um, and I would like a chance to plug my uh, friendship with the online friendship of sorts with the guys who do Jeff Goldblum the Complete Works podcast, which is a spinoff of their main cast, Mike and Mike Go to the Movies. You might have heard of that. Um, because I have a, I'm on Letterboxd, and I write under the pen name Poetic Critic. And fairly early on, they end their episodes, because they're going through the whole Jeff Goldblum filmography, including all the bit parts. And they end each episode. Part of it is they have letterbox reviews. They read off some. I was one of the only people who did reviews for movies, Threshold and Rehearsal for Murder, when they got to the turn of the 1980s. And when I found out about that, I got in touch with them after they did their episode on the fly. And not long after that, they made a point of bringing up the Poetic Critics Review. They only refer to me as that at the end of each episode when they do the rundown. And with a few of the movies they did at the turn of the 90s, including at least one I think we're going to discuss in a little bit, uh, I was one of the only people who wrote a review for that movie. <laughs> sort of a story arc of sorts, how obscure some of these films are, is they, they saw it. 
Well, it's interesting that you told me there's an entire European Goldblum leading actor that's, I mean, geez, Tarantino could probably make a movie about that. I mean, that's pretty much what uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood ends up being. So, now uh, we're going, I'm with Rory in person, so we're going Rollerball 75 here, <laughs> no time limits, no disqualification, no penalties, and, well, I'm going to keep it clean, so a little bit of penalties, but otherwise, <laughs> last person standing. And as Rory was discussing that turn of the 90s stuff, well... Before we get to that, let's just get to probably the pinnacle of sub-97 minute Jeff Goldblum. And I think it's appropriate because uh, last week of Ali, I uh, asked her to watch the video drone review. So let's go right to the Cronenberg stuff and go into the fly. Um, now personally, more of a... I, I, I'm finding myself being more like Drew McQueenie from... Uh, 80s all over and numerous controversial screen drafts. <laughs> He's also uh, written a couple of the Masters of Horror uh, anthology series, both directed by John Carpenter. And I would totally recommend Cigarette Burns. That was just brilliant. Probably the last great thing Carpenter does. And that reminds me, I still gotta go and pick up Ghost of Mars. That's really my first in theater. <laughs> Carpenter, probably my only in theater Carpenter, uh, aside from reissues. Right. So, but, um, I don't know, I, for a Cronenberg movie, I'm so used to the shock being right off the bat, you know, uh, Videodrome, you got James Woods watching torture porn, (laughs) uh, History of Violence, you get the child, I know it was off screen, but murdered right off the bat and you really don't get that you get 20 minutes of fine exposition rather innocent and it gets intense in the end and I and I appreciate that but I don't know maybe there's just so much great stuff you get done with Brundle and Goldblum's performance is excellent but I could have used a little less Ronnie Oh, I think Gina Davis helps make the movie what it is. You need to have somebody very strong to play off of. Uh, I've come to like uh, Gina Davis quite a bit. Last year I was working through a bunch of her movies. and She is still working, but, you know, it's a smaller, more obscure project. Unfortunately, that happens a lot with actresses. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Too much uh, teeth-to-gum ratio, I think Stuart Griffin said. <laughs> Oh. oh, well, I was going to bring up also that you've seen uh, damn near the entire uh, Roger Ebert must-see film list. Uh, oh, I no, still 70, have 65 to go. 65 time. to go. I mean, still, I'd be doing a Peter Griffin on that one. <laughs> and he's dead. <laughs> one point Peter. <laughs> so, um, no, it's... You see, I guess it might be my issue with the character of Ronnie, and it's not really an issue. Is it? It's a very flushed out, full character. Yeah. Uh, is that uh, I know way too many relationships um, that it it maybe may have been a little too authentic for me because you know my first experience came from a 
girl who had just been in a father type relationship and that's what you get with her and Boren and then she goes to me who was completely innocent so maybe it just hit a little too close for home or now like on a podcast I listen to on the ringer uh, rewatchables they bring up a question later later on about every movie could this be remade into a 10 episode Netflix series <laughs> And I think there's enough with Brundle that we could have done that. I don't know. I like that, and I've said this a few times uh, to friends, is that what you get in Jeff Goldblum's character arc in The Fly is the sort of thing that you it would be like in one 140-minute movie now, superhero movie. It's the kind of arc that you'd only be at the end of the first act. <laughs> Now, it's what's one of the things that makes it so impressive is how much it gets done in that ninety-seven oh. minutes. It goes through a character arc that could not have, was could not have been easy to play because it goes through a lot of extremes. Well, on his end. Well, I guess if we go back to video drawing. Um, yeah, you see some Jim, of that. Yeah, with Jake Woods' character. Right, Cronenberg's just an excellent at that. He's uh, a great actor's director. There's yes. no. A lot of actors do some of their best work with him. No one mm-hmm. can deny oh, I mean, he's pretty much given legitimacy to Ryan Pattinson. Um, Robert Pattinson. Wow, sorry. Um, no, that, that was very helpful. I liked... Uh, Cosmopolis is one of my favorites, but I liked Maps to the Stars more than I think a lot of people did. Mm-hmm. But uh, thinking about Cronenberg, at least from an acting level, Yeah. I mean... He's maybe the best part of Jason X. <laughs> I want him squishy. <laughs> and, uh, you know, what What did Jeff Goldblum think, though, as Cronenberg plays the gynecologist? And basically, like, well, I'm supposed to be acting like I'm getting a view of your girlfriend's hoo-ha. <laughs> That's not <rich. laughs> uh, Actually, uh, Gina Davis was the one who requested Cronenberg play that part. Because if you're going to be in that position on screen, might as well have some. It might as well be the director. So it's kind of like how Tarantino and Dario Argento like to have their hands in a bunch of the murder sequence where you <laughs> don't see the killer's face. All right, so um, let's see. I think I've covered everything I've got. Uh, about the fly. Um, I was very impressed when we came talking. Yeah, any other thoughts on the fly that you mm-hmm. want to give? Well, it's hard to think of anything I can say about the fly at this point that a lot of other podcasts haven't covered. Because just about any even mildly known 80s movie has been discussed on like a zillion different podcasts at this point. There's, there's a whole bunch of excellent podcasts. Uh, out there that have covered the fly. There was one of the trying to remember the name. The projection booth, I think it is. They did a three hour plus episode on it. And they even interviewed one the uh, key producer Stuart Kornfeld, who passed away last year. And he had some interesting stories I can remember. There are a lot of great stories about the fly that are worth hearing. If you haven't seen the documentary Fear of the Flesh, which is on the 
more elaborate DVD and Blu-ray releases, you really should. And the Cronenberg commentary track on the DVD is very good. There's just, everybody's got great stories about that one. I do think it is Goldblum's best performance. It, I think everything goes back or forward, if you look at his early work, to Seth Brundle in that it was a lead role where he got to display everything. They talked about this on uh, Complete Works, too, in a way that I know Malcolm in the Jurassic Park movies is the most iconic of his roles. And a lot of people who seen, have seen Independence Day or more recently Thor Ragnarok, which now seems to be one of the canon Goldblum titles, it seems, in terms of how well that particular character is known. But I think Seth Brundle is the defining Jeff Goldblum character. I would agree with that. Um, I mean, when you look at the Grandmaster, he's really just Jeff Goldblum. Yeah, he was allowed to improvise a lot. Right, right. So, you know, from Cronenberg, I'm going to just do a little curveball here before we get into what this next movie I have listed for. We might just jump to it now. Um, before I get to Mad Dog Time, mm-hmm. um, I watched Mad Dog Time on Screen Picks. And when I was done with the on demand, I came at the end of Robot Jacks. <laughs> and. I do not. I know they brought it up on screen drafts, the Stuart Gordon draft. Yeah. Um, I don't know, because I did. It's been, you know, maybe five years since. Probably close to seven years since I saw Robot Jocks via Netflix DVD. Right. And I don't know why I did not remember the chainsaw jump from one of the bots. <laughs> so it's kind of like. You know, where were the... Well, I know where the balls were on Michael Bay with Transformers, but come on. Those are nothing compared to the Chainsaw Willie. That's just a sub... This is what I meant about keeping it clean. We're PG-13 at worst right now. (laughs) I'm not going into too much detail about Stuart Gordon's best-known works being... Oh, Castle Freak, I'm waiting for that DVD to finally mm-hmm. arrive. Um, Reanimator and yeah. From Beyond. Right. I've seen those. I still have to get to Robot Jocks. It's it's definitely worth a watch. Um, I mean, I don't know if it's number two, like, Screen Drafts ended up having it, but uh, I digress there. Yeah. But uh-huh. now, what movie did you want to get to? Well, you know, we might as well, since I brought up Mad Dog Time, might as well go into that one, which is uh, interesting premise. Well, I don't know if we really have much of a premise. Oh, in no, it. it doesn't. I uh, this is a it's a film directed by Larry Bishop, who I thought, oh, he must be a character actor if Tarantino cast him in right. um, Kill Bill Volume Two or how he got. Uh, to direct, and I think Tarantino probably gave money to that project, Hellride, in about 2008. Um, no, he doesn't really have that great re- greater resume. He's a interesting character actor, and I'm surprised he doesn't have much of a resume. Uh, but as a director, like he just wanted to be cool. It was almost like he was doing a Tarantino knockoff with Well, this film. was the mid-90s. This was the height of Tarantino knockoff film, although... This one does skew older in the cast than most of those appear to. 
Oh, yes, most definitely. Um, like Richard Dreyfuss. There's some great performances, or at least acceptable performances. Well, I really liked Goldblum in this Goldblum was good. Richard Dreyfuss, mm-hmm. I... He well, carries more of the movie than I expected he would. Yes. Uh, I guess my issue with the Goldblum performance is, you know, until we finally meet, meet the real Nick Falco, and that uh, Richard Dreyfuss might actually want to kill him, you know, for sleeping with his girlfriend. Um... He suddenly turns from a suave gunslinger to Jeff Goldblum. Yeah. So that's an interesting change. I mean, Gabriel Byrne is going for broke. It's definitely right. like... Well, I mean, he wasn't... Which is weird when you have the beginning of the film talking with his little monologue about the Big Bang. And right. then he turns out getting... Well, I mean, his fate's I, not great. Right. The whole idea of the ultimate universe is clearly so all these people... We can have all these gangsters doing gangster things, but there's no one to stop the gangsters. I mean, that's what it is. All right. I mean, there's no, apparently no law enforcement in this alternate universe and all that. I guess you'd say you got the same thing going on with Hellride. Um, which I is seen a, that. Well, I mean, if you want the definitive Vinnie Jones performance outside of... Uh, Bony, uh, bullet tooth Tony from Snatch. That is it. Um, now, uh, Mad Dog Time was, in, as I put in my review, it's an oddity. It has the where, what, when, how, why, but not the who. It's people doing things mm-hmm. for yeah. like 90 something minutes. <laughs> yeah, it's. Um, I mean, I do appreciate anytime Billy Drago gets almost mainstream work. I'm yeah. going to say that. Um, Dreyfus is perfect, I think, in his role. He delivers mm-hmm. it very well. Ellen Barkin, I mean, there's just, I guess this does bring me to a note I had in general about my uh, gold plume binge. Yeah. Too much gold plume shagging. I, I mean, there's a lot of it in the fly, more than I thought there was going to be. And then, um, you know, there's this, there's, so the character's sleeping with sisters, and there's one bit, though, and you don't see anything, except Goldblum's butt and the fly. Um, but there's one scene where it implies that he was shagging Ellen Barkin right next to the coat check, just standing up, which the math doesn't make sense, the height differences, what have you, never mind, you have the coat check window right there, and there's somebody working. I, it, it's just kind of surprising me that he, Larry Bishop, you know, took another 12 years, got another movie, <laughs> and he's basically doing, trying to do Tarantino. Well, Ebert, you know, famously detested this movie. Oh, I did not know that. He said it was the first, it's one of the most infamous things he ever wrote in a review was, this was the first time he'd seen a movie where he would have rather been a blank screen for 90 minutes. Damn. Yeah. Because uh, at least he'd have his thoughts. You know, he could just have his own thoughts then. So is it worse than North then? Uh, because I hate, 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 hated this movie. Yeah. I don't this know. is from a guy who's seen 4,000 movies. <laughs> well, he did say it was bad enough that it should be turned into... They should take the negative and turn into ukulele picks for the poor. It, it is definitely down there with North and how far... Uh, vicious the review got. Dang. And I can see why it 
drove him nuts. No one, I don't think there were any positive reviews for it. It was pretty notorious at the time for this tiny little thing that, you know, probably didn't get outside the big cities. Um, I don't think it's that terrible, but a lot of it came down to that I liked Goldblum that much in it. Because there's a lot he can he can carry. Well, Especially when he gets a lot of screen time like that. I guess my um, last thought on that, going over my notes, is uh, Comic Larklin sucked in the 90s when it came to the big screen. <laughs> I mean, we're not we're not talking Twin Peaks here, or right. and I'll give it. I have not seen Firewalk with me, but I'm presuming it's awesome. It's David Lynch's Twin Peaks. David, mother, loving Bowie. Okay. Its reputation has gone up over the years. It got uh, pretty roasted when it came out, but over the years, it's got it's made it to the Criterion Collection. Oh no, I, I know that. I, that's why I don't question its quality. I'm just saying, Kyle McLaughlin, all right, look, Kyle McLaughlin went from Mad Dog Time to Antagonist in Showgirls. Have you ever seen the Indie Sex uh, IFC documentary back in the good old days of I IFC? I've seen some of them. Okay, there's a bit where one of the uh, talking heads on it. All right, I am now going to impersonate... I <laughs> know, oh, I am now going to reenact exactly the pool sex scene from showgirls. Everybody's got jokes about that one. So, alright. So, you know what? I don't know. What do you think would end this bet on a a good note? Because we got shooting Elizabeth. Well, I guess we could just go and take the easy way out and talk about uh, Annie Hall. (laughs) But... Uh, we got Shooting Elizabeth, and I've got The Year of John Lovitz. I mean, he was in everything in 1996. Well, we'll go to that in a little bit. All right, we, we can discuss Shooting Elizabeth first. All right, well, I understand, I, you know, you're going to definitely know more about this and probably have more affection towards it. I mean, I, I was basically saying this is a Jeff Goldblum, crappy marriage with Mimi Rogers. Yeah. Decides that he, he's got to take control. The thing he really wants to do is kill his wife. Right. And he eventually wises up, but there's too much circumstantial evidence. What happens is she disappears before he can do the deed. Well, so. he was going to chicken. He right. chickened out by yeah. that point, but, mm-hmm. you know. He, she decides to leave him. Unfortunately, the problem is is that not only has she disappeared, but he got so far along in his plot that there's now a bunch of stuff that suggests he actually was responsible for yes. it. So the last stretch of the movie, he's trying to clear his name by tracking her down, but right. she seems to have gone completely off the grid. Mm-hmm. And perhaps it needed more, we needed more Mimi Rogers, Jeff Goldman to make this movie work early yeah. on. Because uh, there's really, it's all for Spanish actors pretty much otherwise, mm-hmm. and he just doesn't have, there's no chemistry with these actors for much. Like, the best scene is the drinking the drinking the water and telling, <laughs> yeah. it, telling the um, <laughs> yeah. producer it's crap. Um, well, uh, yeah, Mike and Mike had it when they covered it for Complete Works, is that given that it does get a bit maudlin by the end when you find out 
that there was an unfortunate event in their past mm. that contributed to the marriage going sour. The movie can't quite pull that off. But I think it also ties into the fact that this happened a lot. I know on 80s All Over, Drew McQueen and Scott Weinberg got tired of these middle-aged white guy movies about wow. guys with insatiable libidos. And there was no... Well, that this was a quite... great... That was a great bit during the psychiatrist. Are you impotent? I don't know. We're not having sex. I could be. Um, right. So, I mean, this is the guy who wants to kill his wife. Not, it's not about his libido. Well, at, at the same time, you are... It is asking the audience to sympathize with someone very unlikable. And I, think and I will give Mimi Rogers credit. Up yeah. to that point, she is yeah. very unlikable. Yeah, it's easier like Jeff Goldblum. Yeah, you can believe that they don't like each other. And that does make it fun to... I think what Goldblum does pull off in the movie is it's not easy to take a character that you have to... to for this kind of comedy to work... You have to want, kind of want to see them win, but you also kind of want to see them get what they've got coming to them. And it's very hard for these kind of movies to stick the landing. And this one doesn't quite, I don't think quite does that. The ending does feel a bit messy. Although I do like the last lines when they're talking about keeping the gun around. Yeah. That, that's a that goes a little darker than maybe an American production of the time would have. Okay. I'm surprised it was an R, because it really language-wise... It is pretty wise, mild for yeah. an R, isn't it? Yeah. Um, uh, but this was uh, not the lowest iTunes Rotten Tomato meter purchase I've made. <laughs> that still belongs to uh, Ultraviolet with Mila Jovovich. Um, I kept trying to give that movie a chance. Big Mila, fa Mila fan. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the graphics were equal to video games at the time. And so I understand that, but it does remind me that uh, Hellboy, the Neil Marshall remake, which has to be awesome. It's Neil freaking Marshall. Yeah. I, I'm sorry. I was holding it. I'm, I have a copy of it on iTunes. It's got to work. It just has to work. David Harbour, Ian McShane, in a cr in cr nothing but crankiness after the role. That usually is gold when it comes to Ian McShane. Um, but, I don't know, I, I said to you that it needed people who had chemistry with Goldblum right. to work. It's like, basically Goldblum doing a Woody Allen movie without an ensemble cast. That's a good way of looking at it. I saw some, I think, you saw it a lot with, when you see movies with American actors, and they're basically with hero casts. The other day, because this was recently on Tubi, I'm working through a lot of 80s movies, and especially canon group holdings. And one film they have is Roman Polanski's Pirates from 1986. Oh, okay. And that's the... That one is led by Walter Matthau. And All right. And virtually the whole rest of the cast is British, and especially continental Europeans. And... Our, it is factor into the movie not quite working is that all these actors don't seem don't quite gel as an ensemble and that could be an issue with Matthau being the only name performer in the cast really hmm. it's what? a very dull movie Cannon only picked it up uh, that's, that's interesting that you say Roman Polanski because 
He's another I pet mean, project of his, a comedic, down and dirty sort of pirate movie. Okay, maybe. It's a weird pet project that took a long time to get made. Alright, maybe he should have been um, extradited then. <sighs> if that's your pet project, because I'm a big fan of Ghost, the Ghost Rider that he directed um, 10 years ago with uh, Ian McGregor. There's no such thing as a bad Ian McGregor movie. I will find somebody to blame for any reason. And the Ian McGregor movie ends up bad. Right. Michael Bay, I'm looking at you. But going, but going back to uh, Goldblum, as I said, he did a lot of movies in Europe at the turn of the decade. It started with the fact that it wasn't like there were a lot of leading roles for him even after The Fly, because he was just a bit too quirky. And one of the first fil films he did after those were stuff like Beyond Therapy which is the only time he played a lead for Robert Altman. And it's still one of the worst films he was ever associated with. He really tries. He's the best thing about it, probably. But it's not a very good movie. And then there was the flop that was Vibes. That was a big studio film. Mm. Although, I like that movie, and I think more people are coming around on that, at least being an enjoyable bit of fluff among all the romancing the stone Ghostbusters type knockoffs because that is basically what that movie is a combination of and Earth Girls are easy to do very well either but that at least was liked even at the time which uh... people are coming around coming to like that too if they would Lionsgate would get off their butt and do a Blu-ray, I'm sure there'd be a ton of pre-orders. That's one of my favorite Goldblum movies as a whole. I also think it's one of the best things Dean Davis ever did. But that had a rough time getting to the screen. Like, that was one of the last films that De Laurentiis's studio had greenlit, and they had to find another distributor after they went under, much like uh, Bill and Ted did. Mm. Well, you know, thinking about De Laurentiis, uh... Keep me. I think I might have to do a Michael Bean episode because Time Bomb keeps showing up on screen picks. It's not. I mean, well, that would be an interesting subject. Yeah, I do. Um, but uh, you bring up Earth Girls are easy, and yeah. this I bring back because our good friend Anime Alley. Uh huh. I don't think she appreciates that nickname, but hey, it's uh, alliteration. You're not, I'm never escaping it. Um, was trying to find movies to contribute to 90 for chill right. and she was just going through the alphabet pretty much and yeah. she's found she was looking at times so you know once I told her yeah that's a sex trafficking movie <laughs> we're, we're, we're getting we're, I think we're at least going to get this straightened out but she was talking about the difficulty she was having because she was trying to say uh, no Abduction of Eden is a 97 minute movie no the internet says 98 she yeah. sends me a photo of the box. Okay, ninety-seven. <laughs> All right, I, I will believe that. And then I showed her on YouTube as we're watching the trailers and basically turning her off of that movie. Yeah, it's three thirty-three at this replay. I can replay in Peoria and Bloomington. Bloomington is not the most awesome one of them. Um, but I was showing her. Then we watched the trailer for Abandonment, and like on YouTube, you can watch the movie, which is weird. YouTube like oh well we have all your account information anyhow so if you want to watch this movie you can purchase it and watch it on YouTube and you can see that 
Directors choose either, I mean, distributors just choose the round down, it looks like, on the boxes. Right. But, long story short. Too late. <laughs> That's an old joke. Yes, I, I can't recall the movie I know it's from. Well, oh, it's from, Cl- well, Clue. Yeah. Oh, there's a ton of people abused it. It's, a, it's an interesting app, the Clue, Clue game for iTunes. Huh. I don't know if it's worth the four bucks, but it keeps us busy at work. Um, should the ceiling for 90 for chill stay at 97 minutes with the occasional 98 just because right. I ended up writing a review for it 10 years ago that I found in my notes yeah. and put on my website? Should we go and bump it up to 139? I mean, 140, you hit 100, you done screwed up. You know? You might as well call yourself two hours, because that's what the first thing we think of is 120 when you say one. Right. So your opinion on that is 97 a good mark? Um, 95 to 100 minutes does seem kind of an ideal length if you're making an adult-oriented production. Okay. There are plenty of shorter movies, of course, especially in the earlier generations like Going back to the 1930s, it was common to have under 90-minute run times. Mm-hmm. Most of the universal monster films were considerably shorter than 90. Mm-hmm. And I prefer shorter movies on the whole. It's not that I haven't enjoyed longer movies. One of my, but I, of all the movies I've really loved, the longest one being there is about one, uh, two hours, ten minutes. Mm-hmm. And that's a rare exception. Uh, I generally do like stuff more in the realm of maybe 70, 100 minutes. Well, 70, you're just not, you're just five pages shot. I'm not going to defend that. And I love Velocipaster, which seems to be giving me a lot of love online. It is my uh, YouTube review of Velocipaster. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think about videos now, I'm thinking about, yeah, my video review, blogs of video reviews get more hits than the blogs where I just write. You think the written word is dead? I don't know. But it is frustrating. It's not something you can really go into as a career anymore. Mm-hmm. I do think it has hurt criticism. I'm with those who say that as much as I like a lot of the online reviewers out there, there are many good ones, it's very. it's been a very mixed lesson. Mm-hmm. Alright, well, I but guess... Well, go ahead. Well, we want to steer this back to the Goldblum thing. Okay, well. Where Shooting Elizabeth falls into the run of the Euro movies, you could call them, though. Some of them were just made-for-TV movies. Mm. Uh, Like, he did some made-for-cable stuff, like Framed, he did with Kirsten Scott Thomas. Uh, But a lot of them did seem to get him over to Europe, uh, usually the UK or France. And a lot of them were kind of along the lines of this light, enjoyable fluff. Uh, I mean, Shooting Elizabeth's like one of the last of that certain kind of farce that kind of died out in the early 90s. You see, when I'm, I'm thinking about that movie, I think, like, come on, have a little more nerve, a few more accidents. Let's go to splitting airs level here. Right. That, that, yeah, that's a good comparison point, that kind of a movie, or Once Upon a Crime, or Blame It on the Bellboy. Mm. 
which uh, I watched because I'm a Dudley Moore fan, but that that is a genuinely painful film. Yeah, especially I, for the talent it has. Yeah, I know. I've tried some real crude statements like, oh, "If you only would have died of alcohol poisoning, a little more commitment to the role of Arthur, and we could have been saved a, gen- a decade of." What we got, Milo and Otis, and the Santa Claus movie. Roughly, there's a lot of people. It's but with some of the other films he did in that period, he did one genuinely great. At least one genuinely great one was the one that kind of kicked it off was uh, Mel Smith's The Tall Guy, which is the first Richard Curtis screenplay, oh, and nice. the film debut of Emma Thompson. Ah. Plus, it's got Rowan Atkinson. For some reason, I know, it's I did, completely that one out of print in this country, I, place. Yeah, I, and it's, that one sounded like... And it, it's terrific. Mm, all right. And it, it does feature 90 for show yes. recommendations. Yes, I do like that. That's, and the fact that it is short really helps it. And he did that, I found this out from the Complete Works podcast, because in 1988, there was a famous writer's strike in Hollywood, and he didn't want to cross the picket line. So he sought out some work in England, and that kind of snowballed into doing a bunch of leading man films over there. And most of them were, as I said, were comedies. Framed as like an art forger who has to collaborate with his ex-girlfriend on a con after she appeared at the train. That was an eight, that one ran on HBO. There was Favor to Watch and The Very Big Fish, which uh, is... It's kind of two plots running by the end. One is about Bob Hoskins having to imperson- impersonating a guy and winning Kristen Scott Thomas's heart in the process. But, but Hoskins' character takes photo, religious icon photos, and he, wind, he winds up running into the Goldblum character because he was Thomas's almost lover. The backstory is an extended flashback that's kind of Goldblum's big sequence in the first half of the movie as to why. And then when he when they cross paths, he crosses Hoskins crosses paths with Goldblum afterward, he turns out to be the exact person he needs to play Jesus in these photos. <laughs> and things snowball from there. He goes in some surprisingly surprising places, I think. The plot with Goldblum's side is more interesting than the romantic deception side, but it is an interesting little film. Again, it does fit in 90 for chill restrictions. Oh no, it definitely, definitely caught my eye. Yeah. That, that's an interesting one. Yeah. It's also one that doesn't re- where Goldblum doesn't really rely so much on dialogue. And he can be very good in roles that don't require him to speak much. No, Another one, probably the most most famous after the tall guy, just because of the log line, is Mr. Frost, which is too long for 90 for chill by a few minutes, if I recall correctly. The log line is, this is the one where Jeff Goldblum plays Satan. <laughs> Be more specific, he's a serial killer in a European institution who deigns to talk for the first time in two years to a psychiatrist played by Kathy Baker. And he, he tells her that not only is he actually Satan, and she's a non-believer, so between that and her profession, she's already skeptical, but also that he's specific, 
specifically come to earth in this particular guise to make people believe in Satan again. And she's key to how he's going to do that. It's a very good film, could have been great. Definitely shows more of the Euro influence than some of the others do, although there are a bunch of uh, fairly well-known actors. And Vincent Schiavelli has a minor part near the end that still <laughs> kind of comes at random. But that, that one is another one you can't find on DVD in this, in this country, at least. I think it's in, uh, available in Europe. What, about, what else did he do in that period? I think that covers the most of what he did in that stretch. And right around the time he did Jurassic Park, he did a TV movie with Forrest Whitaker called Lush Life, which is about jazz musicians in New York, and that's a charming little film. Oh, uh, yeah, the white guy doing jazz movie. You know how that works out. They're both doing jazz. Yeah, he's Jewish anyhow. Um, well, Actually, it's that's, a... that's more of an ant. Sorry. Sorry for my misunderstanding of my volatile mermaid on Twitter. I know you disprove that white Jewish thing, but... Sorry, my apologies. She's an excellent follow. Uh, I think her handle is Oh No, She Twin. Um, but, you know, I guess this is a awkward segue to another Jewish actor, uh, John Lovitz. And as I say, uh, 1996 may have been his year. Uh, an uncredited role in Matilda... Uh, the short for goodness sake too, which I can't get too much off of the internet about. I know it was directed by Trey Parker, so it definitely has promise. Mm -hmm. But uh, and of course he had High School High. Was High School High better than the Great White Hype? I I've not seen High School High, so oh, I, I thought we I thought I thought it was one of the weird trips where oh I have my driver's license and like oh we're wanting to see a John Lovitz movie and oh. I don't remember that. It, 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 it's interesting. Uh, very, um... <sighs> Tia Carrar. Yep, she pretty much... Okay, but... Uh, Tia Carrar. Uh, she pretty much, um... Had true lies in the Wayne Torp movies. Yeah. I mean, and Lilo's big sis. <laughs> That's true. But, um, so... But The Great White Hype. Um... This seemed like a movie that was completely improv. Well, they just covered this one on Complete Works, and the original idea was that it was, Conceit was, it was going to be an improv film. Ah. I mean, the co-writer is Tony Hendra, mm. with, along with Ron Shelton. And Hendra was... Oh, I, I didn't even take the time to look at the writers. Ron Shelton, great, great sports movie right. writer. Sh yeah. And the original concept was, was going to be more of a mockumentary. Because ah. Hendra, if you're not familiar with the name, he was a British comic writer and performer he's probably best known for playing Spinal Tap's manager that, oh, was, that is what you would recognize him from but he did but yeah they originally came up with this script as sort of a mockumentary but over t but during development and especially after they got Reginald Hudlin to direct it the, I, the idea shifted a bit you do definitely see signs of the original concept in the film, especially in the early sequences where the Goldblum character's filming that documentary and he's shooting the breeze with <laughs> characters outside the Ocean Grand. 
into it. Uh, yeah. Well, give me something to cry about. <laughs> yes. Great quotes in the movie. Yeah. I mean, it's it, it's a fun movie. It doesn't quite work. It, it Yeah, it's fun. I, I, lo- I love the cast. That is a pretty fun cast. And you see a bunch of people he's worked with before and or would work with again. Like Damon Wayans, worked with Nerf Girls are Easy. Mm-hmm. Samuel L. Jackson, he, he'd been working with... That was another film in that turn of the 90s period that he did in this country called Fathers and Sons. Uh, First time yeah. he worked with Samuel L. Jackson. Uh, okay. And they get, they get a bunch of scenes together in the movie, too. Mm-hmm. That's a bit of a weird one. But it's fascinating subject matter. And well, the performers it, are definitely having fun. Yeah, and I look at my notes, and as I'll say, and this comes from somebody who's been in the professional wrestling business and have gone and exploited myself in the boxing ring as well. Yeah. Um, it does, I mean, it only works, I guess, because that field, the field, the profession, mm-hmm. is so heartless. Yeah. So it doesn't work from a writer's standpoint. No, it's unfocused. A lot of scenes go on too long. But but it's exactly what it is exactly what uh, yeah. everybody who we're not exaggerating when we tell you if you ask somebody about tales from the wrestling ring or the boxing ring. Yeah. I, and this is coming from a profession where my trainer Danny Daniels. So the most important lesson of professional wrestling is everything is a lie. Right. You're, you're, the, the pain you show, the emotions, the money you make, everything's a lie. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, the Great White Hype does deliver that kind of feel. So, yeah, so it understands what it's doing. It has some interesting things to say. It does capture that particular time in boxing. Oh, that's... Like, I guess in the original drafts, it wasn't so much parody of, like, Don King. Mm-hmm. In fact, originally, the uh, Hendra Watt was going to play the promoter character. Well, that so would've... you can kind of see where there was a lot of shifting as it went into development. We had... They just had to write him out of the Spinal Tap universe. Yeah. Because I, I checked, like, okay, this is yeah. because they had their... They just couldn't get him to do this special... Right, it's not because he's dead. We just checked out MDB. Right. Tony Hendra is alive and well. Right. Or as alive and well as you can be in England with COVID, super, super well, disease. But with Great White Hype, there was, I couldn't say I liked the movie, but I'm, I do agree. It's a fun movie. Mm. And I do like it, does have a feel for its time. It's inter- always interesting to see how Vegas gets represented on screen. Because it's very clear, they shot a lot, they just shot a lot of it in the city. Mm-hmm. I recognize, like, the decor at the time of the MGM Grand, what that would have been. And I, and as a Goldblum movie, I do think that's a pretty interesting character arc he has, not to go into spoilers. Mm-hmm. But that was kind of surprising, but it was also interesting. And he plays it well, and it fits the larger themes. And he gets some great sparring in with Samuel L. Jackson, yes. too. Mm. And, you know, Jackson, that's a pretty great role for him. Oh, yes. That was one of his first big roles after Pulp Fiction, right. wasn't it? Yeah, no, I I just know, really, I think the only place that was advertising was FX. Mm-hmm. And during the Living Color replays. That's true, but that, that's because we were watching a lot of that at the time, so. Well. But coming 
as it did in 96, and this is right before Independence Day, too. It was like a few months. Yes. Now, that's one of... that's It's an interesting film, and I would recommend to anybody who likes these actors or likes the setting. Let me think. Could have used some more strong, strong female characters in some, some way. But well, it's not really surprising this would be an all-guy, you know, a boys club thing in this milieu. Well, when writing my uh, pro-wrestling, no-budget zom comedy, Made of the Dead, feel free to email me at rustthebus07 at gmail.com if you'd like to get a treatment or you have any suggestions on how to get this film out of developmental hell. Um... I wrote the first script. I made the mistake of getting it copyrighted. Nobody wants to deal with copyrighted material. They want right. you to just pitch them something. They yeah. own it. You get a check. If you're lucky. Um, but aside from the orgy in the, fir- the, my first, the draft that is copyrighted in the U.S. Uh, library. You must be so proud. Yeah. Um, Aside from the orgy, there's not really any female characters in the movie, and I caught that as I was writing up treatments for the next draft. Um, so I can definitely tell you that there's there's way people just have to take the time to write to figure out how do I take off this character's willy and take off the hot dog and replace it with a taco. Can I hear a wahoo?